Welcome. This is the Public Relations Review Podcast, a program to discuss the many facets of public relations with seasoned professionals, educators, authors, and others. Now, here is your host, Peter Woolfolk. Welcome to the Public Relations Review and to our listeners across America and around the world. Our first topic today is the question of the value of the APR accreditation in public relations. What are the arguments for and against the APR certification? And second, our topic will be are the lines between paid and earned media becoming more difficult to see? So we'll explore this today. My guest today is Gail Lynn Falkenfeld, president of the Falcon Valley Group Public Relations, and she joins us from the wonderful city of San Diego, California. Now, Gail, hey, Peter, stay classy. <laughs> That's now, Gail has spent 15 years as an award-winning broadcast editor and producer with KGO Radio, KPBS Radio, KFMB Television, before transitioning into her public relations career. Gail is noted for her expertise in crisis communications, media relations, media training, and strategic planning. She is a board member and past president of the San Diego Press Club, where, by the way, she was honored with an award for career excellence in public relations, one of the very few individuals to have that achievement. She is also a board member of the San Diego chapter of the Public Relations Society of America and belongs to many other notable organizations. So, Gail, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. So as I opened up now, tell me from your point of view, what are some of the issues surrounding the accreditation, the APR accreditation? Well, let's first make sure that all the listeners are familiar with what we're talking about. Accreditation in public relations, or APR, no, it has nothing to do with real estate in this context. This is a uh, bar exam style program, if you will, put together uh, several decades ago by the Public Relations Society of America, the preeminent professional association for public relations practitioners in the United States, to essentially test and measure um, your knowledge in public relations. It's a voluntary certification program. It's administered like a lot of other professional association designations by the Universal Accreditation Board, and it is open to professionals with a minimum level of experience and meant to demonstrate a certain threshold of competence and to be a mark of distinction, to distinguish you as an expert practitioner. Now, this is not a license, and as we both know, there isn't such a thing in our professional service arena as a license. We don't go get licensed as attorneys do or even as accountants do and certainly not even as certain contractors or medical professionals. So this is imprinting a way to measure just how much knowledge, uh, skills, and experience a certain practitioner has. It's one more value measurement in the toolkit that goes along with higher education, uh, and some other uh, continuing education tools that people can achieve. And I get asked a lot, I do hold an APR, is it worth it? Why should you earn an APR? There's a lot of pros and cons, and it really is particular to your individual goals as a practitioner. 
it's not necessarily something everyone needs to do. It's not necessarily something everyone wants to do. And there are alternatives. A master's degree, for example, whether in mass communication or often a master's in business administration is a smart option for PR practitioners. But it does take some time. It takes some effort. There's a little cost involved. Uh, and you do have to maintain your paid membership in PRSA to maintain your APR designation. Well, you know, as, as I was listening to you, I was just thinking back, uh, you know, a number of people that I know and, and uh, have, that have achieved uh, various levels of um, accomplishment in, in uh, public relations, let's say maybe newspaper writers, uh, reporters, uh, TV anchors, those sort of people, because they have are seen to know that the particular area may not have, let's say they leave uh, uh, being a television reporter and become a PR person. Most people recognize them for that. So that might not be a hurdle for them. Let's say if they decided to one, want to join a, a large PR firm or become a private practitioner. This is a designation that really is not an educational tool like um, a higher education degree would be. You're not, you're not earning knowledge. The APR is, is truly very much like a bar exam that tests the knowledge and the experience you already have. Mm -hmm. I often tell people who are feeling a little intimidated or, or find the studying daunting that it isn't so much about studying for this exam. It's more about organizing your thoughts and experiences around what you have already learned through a lot of hard hands-on trials. You need to have a minimum of five years experience. In my opinion, you're really much better off waiting until you have 10 or 15. And it helps uh, philosophical and procedural structure to the day-to-day -day things that we do. In my case, the reason I decided to earn my APR um, was really to put those um, uh, procedural underpinnings around my career to make sure that I understood, it stepped back and understood the processes that guide us in this profession. Mm -hmm. You know, it's real easy for us to get bogged down in the little tactics we do every single day. This gives you an opportunity to go back and, and really put a structure and planning and thought process around what we do. And the exam is based in large part on the traditional four-step public relations planning process, the one that we often uh, refer to by the acronym RPI, R-P-I-E, Research, Planning, Implementation, and Evaluation. Mm -hmm. And it tests all the factors that go into putting together from start to finish an evaluation a full public relations communications plan. Well, uh, as you said, I was just sort of thinking um, because situations vary. And I think you mentioned the fact that perhaps minimum five years before you can take it and perhaps more, and I certainly agree with that. Because I certainly learned a lot. I, I basically started out uh, indirectly by being in radio, a DJ, and that was not satisfying. So I went into talk radio, and that was altogether different in terms of the, the planning and being able to pre 
prepare for guests, so forth and so on, ask questions, blah, blah, blah. Next thing I know, I'm the uh, well, media relations manager for the uh, at the national headquarters of the National Education Association. From there, I went on to be um, uh, press secretary for the uh, chairman of the House Education and Labor Committee. Along the way, I also picked up some TV production experience and grew from there and wind up also then working for the president of the United States. So I can certainly see that experience is critical. You know, it's one thing to, to pass all your exams in college uh, as compared to actually being in the trenches and actually doing the work. Absolutely right. And your path is so common from broadcaster or journalist to essentially that first rung on the ladder, the public information officer or the media relations um, individual for a company. And media relations, especially 10, 20 years ago, uh, could be a major part of a public relations professional's job. Mm -hmm. I know when I opened my own firm 15 years ago, that was probably 80% of what I did for my clients. That's changed considerably in a lot of cases uh, and something that we'll talk about a little bit later in this podcast. Media relations is becoming a smaller and smaller slice of the pie. Mm -hmm. and once you get good at that skill, which is a central skill for a lot of jobs, what you're then asked to do is to be a little more thoughtful, a little more deliberate, and a little more strategic about message dissemination, creation. What is the call to action? Who are the target audiences? Mm -hmm. And how do you aim at them, speak and communicate to them, and get them to do what you want them to do? Because we always want them to do something. And... That is where the overlay of the planning process starts to come into play and is something that we more thoughtfully deploy. And once you've started putting all of that together, this is what accreditation is measuring, a more thoughtful, strategic planning process that yields specific results measured and evaluated. Now, what does it get you? You know, what What do you get other than somebody says, hey, you get to put those three little APR letters after your name. Do you get a swell uh, a handshake or trophy? Does someone write you a check? Well, you'll often read statistics that practitioners who have the APR earn more than non-accredited peers. Well, I'm not sure that that's causation, I wonder if that not might not really be correlation because you do need to be a bit of a senior experienced pro to take the exam. Mm -hmm. And of course, someone at a senior level is going to make more money. I think there is a much more important reason to get your APR. It's not the ability to be promoted. It's not the ability to make more money. It's the confidence you gain passing that exam, understanding that someone used measurement tools in the form of the exam and the other processes that go with it, the review board and so forth, it tells you, yes, I know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. I'm following well-established practices in my profession. And that extra boost of confidence that it gives you 
makes you that much better at your job when people are counting on you to strategically advise them the confidence with which you could deploy your advice goes way up and that to me is the real difference that you gain with something like an accreditation well i certainly support your you know your position on that and, and it does make sense because particularly in in this day and age particularly when people are looking at metrics of, of things as to how are you uh, judging whether, you know, the return on investment was achieved, uh, you know, all those other things and the various platforms that are available to you to reach, uh, to reach the uh, various and sundry audiences now. You really do have to have uh, the, the skills necessary to accomplish those tasks. Peter, you are so right. And I will admit on this podcast, our marketing colleagues do a far better job traditionally than we do. We've in the past done things like counted clips, mm -hmm. right? Oh yeah. Counted <laughs> clips, right? Counted hits or likes or shares. Well, those are indications that your campaign is doing the right things, but is it achieving the results? You can't tell from those things. Mm -hmm. Your audience can see all the tweets and posts in the world or read all the articles in the world and still never take the action that you want them to take, whether it's to purchase a product or service, donate to a cause, or vote for your candidate or initiative, or change their behavior, as in getting vaccinated or stopping smoking. We need to see those results and measure those results mm -hmm. and tie them to our messages. And that is something, uh, thankfully, in the last 20 years, we've gotten far better at doing. Well, you know, that, that is a major part of putting together a plan as a, uh, what is the, uh, the key performance indicators. You know, that uh, the, you or the client, someone establishes exactly what they are. What is it that we want to find out from this project we're putting together? And let's face it, these folks that write us a paycheck or write us a check because they've hired us as a contractor or consultant, want to know if they're getting their money's worth. Mm -hmm. And it's in our best interest to prove, yes, you are getting your money's worth and we're a good investment. Well, you know, the other thing I notice about that too is that there also has to be some honest discussion because a lot of times clients might not know exactly what it is they want or the expectations might not be within, I shouldn't, maybe shouldn't say within bounds, but maybe not quite acceptable. Uh, let's say we'll find by doing this program, I want, let's say they use an influencer. I want to have that influencer show me that they can have, um, let's say 500,000 people buy our product. Well, that's not always going to happen. Right. Every one of us is bound by time, by budget and resources and we need to figure out what does success mean? Mm -hmm. Is success a 10% increase in sales, a 50% increase in sales? Well, of course you'd like 50% increase in sales, but if you don't have the budget to spend to get there, you have to start at a more realistic level. And frequently, people like us are in the business of educating our clients or our employers is to here's, here's a realistic effort. Now let's do some very careful thinking, laser-like focus, and really pinpoint 
the audience that you want to reach more likely to take action. The, the two words that are the kiss of death in our profession is general public, three of them, the mm -hmm. general public. Who's your audience? The general public. <laughs> really? Well, let me think about that with you for a minute. Is the general public my 13-year-old nephew and my 85-year-old mother? Hmm, I don't think so. That's right. So let's narrow that down. Is the general public for your local restaurant people that live 3,000 miles away? Well, maybe it is if you're a significant tourist destination, but probably not. It's mm -hmm. probably going to be people in a half-hour driving radius. So we start narrowing the audience way down, and then we know how to spend those limited uh, resources we have as far as time and, and budget and talent and make sure we get those results. And this is all part of the process that you really start to put together in a more strategic way. And people in business especially expect that of their employees, and they're beginning to expect it of us. Mm -hmm. So the accreditation platform gives us something to aim at, knowing this is the standard to which we're being tested, and helps you develop your career. Now, having said that, for many practitioners who really need the opportunity to gain the knowledge in the process, that's where considering a master's degree or an MBA might be a better road if you have the time if you can afford it. Mm -hmm. The absolute ideal situation is to get that master's degree and while you have developed those that muscle memory for studying for the topic, for really immersing yourself at a certain level of the profession, as soon as you finish, finish that degree, uh, double it up and pursue your accreditation. You're already studying a lot of the same things and it is a lot easier to do it as a two-for-one. Mm -hmm. Just adding, one of the things that you did say uh, in terms of um, developing a good, solid plan, part of that should also be making sure that people understand about controlling expectations so that people don't think too far out of the box or expect uh, the world on some sort of a, a meager budget that they might have to offer or work with. Right. Haven't we all heard those words? Well, is that all? <laughs> is that all we did? Is that all we got? Mm -hmm. Let's have that conversation. The, the more open communication and, and realistic look um, to make sure that the, the client and the employer understand that we want to get the best possible results out of whatever they've got to work with. Now, it is possible to just simply have too little to work with. Mm -hmm. And I have had clients, one in particular who comes to mind, who had a wonderful product and a startup business. But the truth is, hiring me was premature. He really needed a, an expert sales executive to start selling the product and start getting it out in the marketplace where it was being used and tested and um, pushed on every day before we had a public relations message to start talking about. So I fired myself <laughs> and it was the right thing to do. Well, you know, this sounds like maybe the uh, excellent place to make that transition now into uh, uh, the differences in paid and earned media. 
because uh, you know having a product available, uh, you can go both routes on that one, uh, paid media as well as earned media if, if it's done right. Absolutely right. So we've started applying the terms in our business um, originally coined by the wonderful public relations pro Ginny Dietrich um, in the what we call the PESO model. And boy, don't we love our acronyms in this business? Let me tell you. <laughs> Sounds like so the, the peso federal model, government. <laughs> yeah, we love them. You know, second only to the military, I think. <laughs> so the PESO model uh, envelops the four general types of media that we work with in messaging. PESO, P-E-S-O, paid, earned, social, and owned. Paid is advertising, anything we pay for for space or time, Mm -hmm. traditional ads, marketing. Earned media is generally news coverage, but it has been also broadened to reviews, online reviews, and other types of uh, third-party endorsements, which we've always seen news coverage as as covering. S, social, uh, very easy to figure out. And owned is anything where we control the platform. Mm -hmm. Your number one owned media is your website. Mm -hmm. You might have a YouTube channel. You A podcast can fall in that category, but we have to be careful that if the platform that you're on disappears, you still have another way to get it out to the public. (laughs) Well, newsletters as well. Your website you always own. Mm -hmm. Social, you don't. If you've got a robust Instagram account, I don't think it's going to happen tomorrow, but if Instagram decided to shut down and go out of business tomorrow, there wasn't a darn thing you could do about it. So that's where it falls in the category outside owned media. Mm-hmm. So we've always had a priority, as we were talking earlier, um, about seeking news coverage. News coverage is always the gold star, the brass ring. Let's throw in a couple of other cliches. We wanted our clients and our employers to be covered in the news. So that our prospective clients or donors or um, supporters would would see it. And the news coverage by the independent third party journalists or the broadcasters conferred uh, that, um, you know, sort of that imprint of, uh, what am I looking for? Um, Acceptability. It was your your acceptance. It was Mm -hmm. your endorsement. It was this this third-party look at what you were doing saying, yes, this is important enough and of value enough to get on the news. But we've seen a massive, massive change in the media landscape in the last 10 or 15 years. We all see what's going on with our local newspapers. it's devastating to a lot of our communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, the layoffs and the cutbacks have been enormous in broadcasting. Uh, the places that you and I used to work are barely holding on, some of them. We're lucky that there are still robust stations in certain markets and newspapers, and there are certainly some uh, terrific national and international news operations. But the fact is that journalists, uh, many of them have been laid off. And the ability to get into news coverage, the ability to get earned media is tougher and tougher and tougher. And heck, a lot of them are becoming public relations people like we are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we can't exactly fault them for that. Well, you That know, does mean that we can use our owned media to tell our own story, but you still need outside channels to reach your audience. I, so I, I agree many with of that. these people to 
Yeah. I was about to say, I certainly agree with that. And one of the challenges then for a good PR person is to be creative as to, as just said, how to, you know, get into that uh, uh, um, uh, earned media. Uh, it, it does take some skills and it's more than just sending a press release there. There might be a wee bit more to it so that uh, you can interest that particular reporter to uh, come take a look-see and eventually write something about your uh, your project. Absolutely. The, the competition among us to get that precious reduced time and space is fierce. There are fewer and fewer reporters, editors, photographers to get the job done. Mm -hmm. The one thing we can do is help them by producing a lot of the material ourselves. Absolutely. In the day when I worked as a television producer and editor, there was no way we would have accepted outside video from any organization other than video we could not otherwise shoot ourselves. And that fell into two very narrow categories, law enforcement or the military, where we just simply didn't have access, uh, or babies born at the zoo <laughs> in San Diego. <laughs> we'd take the baby, we'd take the ba cute baby footage every time, and we'd take the Coast Guard rescue off the coast or a law enforcement action of some kind. But er uh, a uh, biotechnology company, no, 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 no. Um, uh, uh, product or service uh, provider, uh, a meeting, a conference, no, no, not a chance. Now they will. Now they absolutely will. And that can be the difference in getting your news coverage or not because you have done the shooting for them. But there does come to a point where your media availabilities it's just not there for you. It's mm -hmm. just not there. And the stations and the print and the online folks know that too. Uh, and they've figured out ways that they can give you some access. But what it means is they bring on personnel that cost them money. And they're going to turn around and offer their services to you to get on. But you're going to pay for it. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of us remember the old advertorials that would be in newspapers and magazines. They might not cover your news, your organization, your company, but they'd say, well, now if you're willing to pay for advertising space, we can make it look like it's a news article. Mm -hmm. But their ethical obligations uh, required them to clearly label that it was paid for. So it would say, paid advertisement, often fairly boldly around mm -hmm. the edges, or advertorial, or, or sponsored by. There right. would be some clear indication. Mm -hmm. But it was still somewhat rare. In my area, you'd see uh, real estate developments, housing developments, things like that would pay for advertorial space uh, frequently, or, or restaurants, something like that. Um, car dealers would pay for what looked like independent car reviews. And they weren't. They were advertising. Today, uh, for their mere survival, media are starting to, I would call it lower their standards, but they're far more accepting of blurring the lines between the traditional news coverage, which we know today as earned media, and letting people contribute pre-produced content that they're paying to place. Mm -hmm alongside the earned media. First of all, it supplements it supplements their programming, it supplements 
their print content. Um, and often it's of extremely good quality. Mm-hmm. And, and much of it is produced by people like you and like me who used to do exactly the same thing on the journalism side of the aisle. Well, so I, we I still do, do write some, a some proper uh, story things. or a proper article. Mm-hmm. And we write or we shoot, produce that material just like we would if that station or that publication had hired us. But it's very difficult frequently for the audience to figure out the difference because they're not always labeled like they used to be. And they often end up in places on the air, online, or in print that don't look a lot different than the news sitting right next to it or that ran ahead of it or after it. Mm -hmm. I teach college students um, in media literacy, in public relations, and marketing. And we use the PESO model, and we talk about earned media versus paid media. I will tell you, many of the 20 and 30-somethings that I teach can absolutely not identify the difference between paid advertising and news. They have no idea. Mm -hmm. Part of it is that people like you and I have gotten so good at this. Let's let's pat ourselves on the back and then turn around and blame ourselves (laughs) for the problem. We can produce something that looks as informational and as third-party objective as a a person who is still a full-time journalist would do. Mm -hmm. And if we give quality information, as we should, honest uh, facts, as we should, it really is hard for our audiences to tell the difference. This, This is a dangerous time because it's very easy to manipulate the outcome and the meaning of that information people are looking at. Many of my students have now gone so far as to assume every single bit of news that they see was paid for by somebody. Paid for. That's astonishing to me. They've just simply, I believe, thrown up their hands and said, well, it just I think everybody just pays for all that stuff because most of it's paid for, isn't it? So all of it must be paid for. I'm just going to assume that. And, and they truly, truly believe it. Well, you know, that's when how, I would begin to ask the question. How do reconcile not having a third-party source of objective information? Well, you know, that's I think... critical I think, in a democracy. But there's, there's also a responsibility on, on some people's part to try to think their way through this and, and also read opposite. And all of the information shouldn't come from one single source. That's, that's another way of beginning to make some judgments. That's certainly that true. The time, the time is long past for us to require media literacy education very early for all of our citizens. And I would propose doing it in late elementary school or middle school. High school is too late. College is way too late for those who even attend. We can't guarantee we're going to get people there. And they do need to be good, skeptical consumers of what they're looking at. For example, another, another example that was a recent um, incident in my market in San Diego was a, 
column, a opinion columnist column, placed on the front page of the daily newspaper. And it said column above it. Inside the organization, inside the newspaper, the editors believe, well, everyone knows what a column is. Everyone understands that a column is opinion. Mm -hmm. I don't think they're, they, they were sadly mistaken. That is not a common turn outside their profession, certainly not anymore. And there was a massive amount of public outrage at the editors of the newspaper for permitting one of their reporters to produce such a one-sided uh, uh, article, article about this particular um, incident. And when they said, well, well, no, 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 this was an opinion piece um, placed there to follow up our news coverage. They can't differentiate that. So we need to take responsibility for clearly, clearly labeling what is paid content and what that means and what is earned media and what that means. And that that's on us. Well, let me also add to that, too. I think there's there's perhaps a, a real lack of, of critical thinking on our parts as well, you know, because just reading it and, and then deciding, well, this is all, or everything is, is uh, paid for, I think it's a bit too shallow in arriving at some decision of what is and is not. There should be a better way of people processing what it is that they read and how they read and where it's coming from to begin to make some decisions. And, and true, in some cases, it's difficult. One of the most difficult things I've seen now is the fact that how you can actually see a video of someone you know, a famous person, saying things that you never would expect. Uh, they showed it on the news of Richard Nixon saying some things that, oh, no, it didn't come from him. They, they've been able to master the, the, the techniques for making it look like he's actually saying these words. Well, I understand that when somebody says, well, I just assume anything I see in the media, somebody paid for. That's a cry of frustration mm -hmm. by somebody who hasn't been educated, who hasn't been exposed or learned the difference. It, we need to start training people how, how to look at information, how to judge the sources appropriately, how to fact check. The information is there if they wish to do it. And they should, at the bottom line, have at least a general awareness of the differences, even if they don't want to comb through every single article, if they don't want to question every single story they see. And there are some media outlets who now have a very interesting approach to transparency, who provide a link or a fact check for every single statement of fact in their news coverage. Mm -hmm. ProPublica is starting to do this frequently, and I think that's a healthy approach. Not everyone can do it. It's very difficult and it's very time-consuming, but with the work they do, it's, it's proved to be very valuable. But it is time for us to start helping people as, as the information professionals we are, whether we're on the journalism side of the aisle or the communications public relations side of the aisle, we're all really interested in the same thing. The, Spreading the facts. truthful, mm -hmm. factual information designed to help people take action. 
Well, let me say I certainly support that. Now, in sort of rounding things out and, and uh, heading for the finish line here, one of the things that I found out uh, that was very interesting about you in terms of writing is that you also cover boxing matches. The, the sweet science, as it's called, how did that come about? I do cover the sweet science. Well, when I started my journalism career, women didn't really cover sports. Well, maybe you could cover figure skating or gymnastics or something like that. And I love those sports too, but that wasn't really a viable career path for me. I transitioned out of broadcasting and out of journalism into public relations full time. But then about 10 years later, I had the opportunity to come back and start doing some journalism in the form of uh, media criticism, but through a very strange opportunity where a door opened, uh, I not only pushed it open, I kicked it open and blasted through it <laughs> and ended up as a substitute sports columnist covering boxing. Now, I'd grown up watching boxing in a household with a very avid fan father, and in, it, I grew up in San Diego, which meant back in the day we could not only watch the fights, the, the big fights everyone saw in the United States, we could also watch television from Mexico, which we did, which mm -hmm. is a boxing crazy country. So here came this opportunity. I knew what I was talking about. I was fully qualified. I raised my hand and said, you know, you need a fill-in. How much worse can you do than nobody? Well, the gentleman who I substituted for never got his job back. And then 10 years later, I'm still working uh, in addition and on the side to my, running my public relations firm as a boxing columnist for a national online news organization, Communities Digital News. And I travel primarily uh, in the western United States, Los Angeles, Las Vegas, those areas, which do hold a significant number of um, championship fights in the United States. So on probably 40 weekends out of 52 a year, I'm at a fight. Mm. <laughs> well, let me say this. I'm not fighting. I'm ringside at a fight. <laughs> and um, it's a wonderful community, surprisingly. Uh, it's full of opportunities for storytelling. Nobody gets into boxing from an affluent background, or very, very rarely. Mm -hmm. Everyone has a fascinating story to tell. It's a worldwide melting pot, and if you love engaging with humanity, very people from all walks of life different from you, uh, it just couldn't be a more enjoyable hobby. And I and I do call it a hobby, even though I am a boxing writing <laughs> professional. <laughs> well, let me say this, uh, Gail. You have really, really have provided us, first of all, a lot of very valuable information in terms of the accreditation process, exactly why it's important that uh, people should at least consider it and uh, and pursue it. And, of course, the issue here of uh, paid and earned media, which I think continues to be an issue that uh, we'll uh, continue to grapple with uh, and also uh, enlightened us to let us know <clears throat> that uh, you're uh, uh, an established, uh, well-received uh, boxing columnist. So... <clears throat> I really do appreciate uh, your being a guest here tonight. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. It's been a pleasure. And I hope that there's some information to you, the listener, that gives you some things to think about, uh, some responsibilities that you might want to 
uh, undertake um, and perhaps some goals you'd like to set for yourself in the near or long-term future. I encourage you to do it. Well, Gail, thank you so much. Uh, Gail uh, Lynn Falkenthal, thank you for so very much for being our guest today. And again, thank you to all of our listeners uh, for the Public Relations Review. And please uh, join us for the next edition of the Public Relations Review. This podcast is produced by Communication Strategies an award-winning public relations and public affairs firm headquartered in Nashville, Tennessee. Thank you for joining us.